would like to go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2, 1 through 12. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And this is still early on in our series called Just That Simple, Jesus plus belief equals life. This is what God has told us. If we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he promises to forgive our sin and grant us eternal life. It's a theme that runs throughout the Gospel of John. It appears in almost every chapter. And it's the message that that the author has self-disclosed that this book is about. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 2, 1 through 12. Let's first go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your assembled church to open up your word. We want to learn from it. We ask that you would show us the true meaning of this passage. We want to understand what, what this is about. We want to understand each line. And then we also want to be able to apply it to our lives. We don't simply want to, to hear it and then leave and, and not have it make any impact on how we live before you, but instead we are trusting that the proclaimed word will find its mark in our heart. So we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to give us illumination and learning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we've all been to the eye doctor at some point in our life, maybe an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, either DO or MD, it doesn't really make too much of a difference if you're just getting a routine eye exam. And there, there is a procedure that, that most people get walked through and it's fairly consistent. Um, the first thing they might do is they, they might give you a paddle to hold up on, and uh, obscure one eye so you can just see out of the other eye and they have you look down at that eye chart with the small letters that get smaller each time they, they hit the, the cycle and they're trying to, to test how, how good your vision is. Do you, can you see 20-20 in each eye independently? And then after that, at some point, they, they might ask you to tilt your head back and they, they put some numbing drops in your eyes so they can test for eye pressure. And it's really a breeze because they, now you just have this little blue circle that, that comes up to your eye and you can't even feel it. Unlike the old days, I don't know if you can remember that they used to test for eye pressure with a puff of air, which was absolutely terrifying. It was like sitting in the chair waiting to get shot in the eye. But it's much better now. And then after the pressure, they will bring this device up and and position it over your face. And you have to look through these little circles and there's dials on the side that they can manipulate. And they're trying to see what your prescription is. Or if you already have 20-20, if if there's any um, stigmatism or if there's anything that they can help clarify it even further. And they'll ask you to choose between one of two lenses. They'll say one or two, and you have to tell one or two, one, that's the clearer one. And so then they'll make an adjustment, click, click, and then they'll say it again, one or two. If there is a, a chance, if there's, if there's a possibility that our vision could be more clear, more accurate, we want that. We want to have accurate vision. And it's the same thing when it comes to what we believe. 
if there's a possibility that what we believe about God, about the things of God, about his church, about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, if there's a possibility that those things can be more clear and more accurate, we want that. We, we want to see clearly. And in John chapter 2, Mary, the mother of Jesus, has her belief and understanding of Jesus clarified. The early disciples, the, the, the handful of men that were already following him, they also have their belief clarified at the wedding in Cana. Let's take a look at this passage and learn from it. We're going to walk through to make sure we understand what was going on in the original context to the original readers. And then we're going to close with a couple of application questions that we can ask ourselves. So this is John 2, only 12 verses, starting at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Chapter 2 begins with this phrase, on the third day. And just so we have the right time reference, it's not the third day from when the Jewish delegation was sent out from Jerusalem to go establish the identity of John the Baptist. It's not, it's not going back to the beginning of the book of John. It's referring to the last event. So that conversation with Jesus and Nathaniel immediately prior to chapter 2, it's been three days since that. It's been three days since Jesus declared that he was Jacob's ladder, that he was the bridge, the connection point between heaven and earth. And on the third day, there is a wedding. We're not told who the bride and groom are, but we are told where the wedding took place. It was in Cana, which is to the west of the Sea of Galilee, still up in Galilee. And both Jesus and Mary were invited. And the most probable explanation for why Jesus and Mary get invited to the same wedding is that they may have been friends with the family, either the groom's family or the bride's family or, or both. 
maybe even close friends, maybe even close enough friends so that Mary is involved and has been asked to participate in the, in the arrangements and the preparations for the wedding. And that, that would certainly explain why down in verse 5 she speaks to the servants and gives them directions on what to do next. So after being told there's a wedding, we move very quickly to a problem. And verse 3 says, the, the wine ran out. The wine ran out. So we need to understand, first of all, that um, weddings, Jewish weddings in the first century, were not uh, a single day event like they are today. This is something that spanned several days, sometimes taking a week to complete. And there would be feasting and, and drinking and celebrating the entire week. A lot of guests would be invited. In a small town, small rural area like this, probably the majority of the community would participate. So you've got a lot of people, and there's a lot of feasting and a lot of drinking on several days. So we really shouldn't be that surprised to read that the wine ran out. Now, the groom's family was financially responsible for providing this celebration, this wedding event. And we can only speculate. Maybe they, they did their best to, to make an accurate calculation of how much wine they would need it, and they just got it wrong. Or, more likely, maybe they had spent a, a lot of money, maybe pretty much all they had, and it just still wasn't enough. And to run out would have been extremely embarrassing. It, it, would have, it would have been beyond embarrassing. This would have brought shame on the family. In this context, in the first century, if you had this week-long festival, celebration, wedding event, and, and the host failed to provide adequate food and drink, this would have brought shame on the family that would have lasted years. They, they would have been talking about this a decade later, oh, you remember that one? They ran out of wine. It was, it was such a big deal that in the first century, the, the groom's family was legally responsible for providing a certain level of celebration. If they failed, then they were open to lawsuit. They could take them to court for not providing an adequate celebration during the week-long activities. So this was a problem. Mary, upon learning that the wine had run out, turned to Jesus and said, they have no wine. Why did she say that to Jesus? Why did she turn to her son and say they have no wine? Well, some say that she's asking for a miracle. Some say Mary is, is expecting Jesus to, to change the water to wine, but verse 11 tells us this is the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. There's nothing in scripture that would lead us to believe that he had been performing miracles prior to this, this first one. So it's, it's somewhat far-fetched to think that Mary expected Jesus to change the water into wine. I, I just can't get there. Some say she's merely passing on information, kind of leaning back in her chair and saying, oh, did you hear? They ran out of wine. But verse five seems to indicate that she wants him to do something. She's not simply making a, a comment. So I think the best way to take her words is to understand two things. Number one, she was looking for help. She was looking for help. Jesus was something, uh, excuse me, Jesus was someone Mary has learned to rely on. 
Jesus has been there for her for the past 30 years. Every time Mary had ever asked for Jesus' help, she received it. Jesus, for the last 30 years, has literally been the perfect son. So I, I think we need to understand that, and I think it's, it's not out of the realm of possibility to, to think that she was expecting that surely if anybody could help, Jesus could. So she was looking to him for help. And number two, although she had not seen any miracles, she knew who Jesus was. She knew he was the son of God. Think back to the beginning chapters of, of Luke. She had been told by the angel Gabriel that this son that she was going to have was not just an ordinary baby. The angel had said, the son of the most high. He, he had said, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So she had been told directly by the angel Gabriel, this is the son of God. She knew who he was. And after years of knowing this, after years of, of, of quietly uh, raising this, this son of hers and, and for the most part keeping it to herself, she might have been tempted to give him a little push. This would be a great time to announce who you are. We're at a wedding. The whole community can hear it. This would be a great time to act and to reveal yourself. This would be a great time to show everyone your glory and your true identity. Come on, Jesus. It's me, your mother. Would you do that for me? And then Jesus' response in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus addresses Mary as woman and not mother. Uh, sons did not normally, and, and still do not normally, children do not normally refer to their mother as a woman. Uh, kids, do you get your mom's attention by saying, hey mom, or do you say, hey woman, or, or hey lady? No, hey, hey mom. So it's unusual, it's more impersonal. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, so he's giving notice to Mary that their relationship is changing. Things are not going to be the same. The first part of his response, what does this have to do with me? That is a polite way of putting distance between people. That, that's a polite way of saying, hey, hey, back up. Give me some space. And then the second part, uh, my hour has not yet come. That's a mild rebuke. Now, later in John 12, he will speak about his hour coming as he approaches the cross. Uh, John 12, 23 says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But in this response, he's telling her, I, I don't want you to presume, based on our relationship, that you have any kind of special hotline to me. I, there, there's no red phone on your desk that you can just pick up and, and, and hit one button and have access to me and tell me what I should do or, or, or what you want. 
He's saying, what you did just there, when you, when you gave me that, that little push, I know you raised me, but that time is over. And, and you're not going to direct me? You're not going to suggest to me what I should do or when I should do it? That's difficult. But as difficult as it was for Mary to hear that, she had to stop thinking of Jesus as her son and start thinking of Jesus as the son of God. She, she had to stop expecting Jesus to obey her and realize that she needed to obey Jesus. She needed to stop treating Jesus like her child and start treating him like her Lord. There was a, a young man who was musically gifted and he just had a knack for notes and arrangements and even in high school he started writing multi-part pieces of music and he went on to study and uh, became a composer and he got married eventually and, and had a child and, and he would go to different venues and wherever he went to, to conduct and, and to, to lead symphonies, he would always reserve two chairs right in the front row for his wife and child, no matter where they went. And they knew they could just walk in. They didn't have to get tickets. They didn't have to call ahead. They could just walk in and sit down in the front row and watch. Jesus is telling Mary, you don't get a front row seat reserved for you anymore. This becomes even more clear in Matthew 12, 46 through 50, which says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my brother, excuse me, here are my mother and my brothers. Who, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. No more reserved seat in the front row. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a sinner like you and me. Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to come to Jesus in faith to ask for forgiveness of sins, just like you and me. This is why we do not pray to Mary. That would be sinful. We do not worship Mary. That would be idolatry. Instead, we pray and worship God, the Father, in the name of the Son and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, it looks like Mary got the message in verse 5. Uh, her understanding of Jesus became a little clearer, a little sharper that day. Because she does not argue with him. She doesn't give him any more pushes. She doesn't even answer Jesus. She, she respectfully removes herself from the situation and makes a final comment to the servants. Do whatever he asks you to do. I'm out. Just do whatever he says. It seems like she got the message, but she is still hopeful that he'll do something. There's nothing wrong with that. And that brings us to his first sign. Verse 6. We're told there are six stone water jars. They were there because of the amount, the sheer amount of water that would be needed at an event like this. It says that for the Jewish rites of purification. So the, the Pharisees and other Jews, remember we talked about the Pharisees uh, a couple of weeks ago. These were the ultra elite Jewish leaders that uh, separated themselves from everyone else. 
And they had added to God's word and added to God's law their own traditions and their own laws, and they enforced those just as strictly as they would try to follow God's word. And so this was part of that, that body of teaching. And the idea was that each time a person eats, they have to wash their hands. If they don't do that, then they're eating with what's called defiled hands. In fact, they, they confront Jesus' disciples about this in, in the Gospels. You can read about that later. But that's what's going on. So at an event like this where you've got so many people and they're, they're eating so many different times, they're there all week. And every time any one person sits down to eat, the attendants have to come over and, and pour water over their hands. Every time, for the whole week, every person. So we can see why there's so much water lying around. They had, they had a need for it. It says 20 to 30 gallons each, and there were six jars. So that means collectively they could have held around 120 to 180 gallons. That's like filling your car up 10 or 14 times, or, or filling your truck up seven or eight times. Jesus told the servants, fill them with water, which they did all the way to the top, to the brim, which is a, a detail that they didn't have to include. John didn't have to include that, but he, he might have included that in case anyone was trying to, to pick at this, at this sign of this miracle and said, well, I know what happened. Somebody probably came in from the side, and when nobody was looking, they poured a little wine into the, the jar with the water and mixed it up, and that, that's why it looks like it. No. No, it says, to the brim. They were topped off with water. No room to add any wine. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast was somebody in charge of overseeing kind of the whole activities. Um, it, it, he might have been like a, a head waiter at, a, at an upscale restaurant or something like that. Somebody who's kind of in, in the back watching, making sure everything's going smoothly. And of course, he had no idea where the wine had come from, but he did feel compelled to comment on the quality of the wine. He called for the bridegroom, and he let him know that he noticed. And you, you can see the detail about the custom. The custom in that day was to bring out the good stuff, then after people's palates had uh, decreased somewhat uh, due to drinking, they would bring out the um, less quality wine. But in this case, he saved the best for last. And of course, the groom didn't know what the master of the feast was talking about. The, the groom was in the dark. He hadn't planned for that. He, he, his plan wasn't to bring the good wine out at, at the end. He was just thankful that there was a solution to this problem and that he wasn't bringing shame upon his family. Verse 11 says, this is the, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Do you see that phrase at Cana in Galilee in verse 11? Those are the exact same words that we read in verse one. It, it, this isn't new information. He told us that already. And do you remember what we called that? When you see the same material at the beginning of a passage and the same material at the end of a passage, it's called an inclusio. It's, a, it's like bookends. 
It's like giant brackets that, that frame the whole passage and it's designed to tell you this is where it begins, this is where it ends. And usually, this is the main idea. This is the point of the passage. So the point of this passage is that Jesus performed his first sign at a wedding in Cana. It is a miracle. John prefers the word signs or works. The signs that Jesus performed were displays of divine power that were designed to point to a deeper spiritual truth that could be seen or perceived by faith. That's the purpose of signs, works, miracles that we're going to see in the book of John. This is the first one. And with this sign, Jesus says, Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That's the result. Now we understand that the glory of Jesus was on full display at the cross and the resurrection. But each time Jesus revealed some of his divine power, he was pulling the curtain back a little bit. He was lifting the veil. And each time that the image and understanding of who Jesus was became a little clearer. It became a little sharper. It became a little more accurate. To those who saw him through eyes of faith. Not to everybody. They weren't, these, this sign was not picked up by everyone. There were, there were some at the wedding who saw the sign, those servants. They, they filled the stone jars with water and then they drew out wine. They, they saw it. Maybe some others heard about it. But they didn't see what the sign pointed to because they did not believe. Jesus performed more, more than one miracle right in front of people. I mean, just real time, right in front of their eyes. And they did not believe His disciples believed in him. So, so John, Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, Philip, those five that we've seen already, this early group of disciples that were following him, it strengthened their faith. It clarified their belief about him. Now, they had already been believing him. They were already following him. But this was a sign that confirmed, that solidified, that, that stamped that belief as, as genuine. Yes, good. That's what I thought. This is the Son of God. Yes, he does have power over creation. And that's, let, let's talk about that for a minute. It says his, he manifested his glory. What, spe, what glory specifically does this point to? What does that mean? It manifested his glory. That Jesus is the sovereign creator God. That Jesus simply willed one substance to become another substance. At his command, at, at, at his uh, will, at his power, one thing became another thing, a different thing. He changed a substance into something else. Jesus created the world. And as the creator of the world, he has sovereign control over it. He can at will change and alter his creation as he sees fit. That's how it manifested his glory. It pointed to 
or displayed his glory. Jesus demonstrated power that could only be ascribed to a member of the Godhead. This, this was a, an opening, a, a lifting of the veil, an opening of the, of the curtain that showed his glory. Now, there, when the Bible talks about glory and the glory of God, we can divide that up into two, two kinds of glory. There is the intrinsic glory of God, and then there is the ascribed glory of God. So the intrinsic glory of God is the glory that God alone has. God's attributes, his nature, his character, his glory, his holiness, his, his wrath, his mercy, his grace, who he is, his splendor. That, that's his intrinsic glory. We cannot add to or take away from God's intrinsic glory. Ascribed glory is the glory that we give to God when we praise him, when we worship him, when we live in our lives in obedience. Anything we do done to the glory of God, that's, that's ascribed glory. And here's the thing, the more clearly we see his intrinsic glory, the more we will accurately be able to give him pure ascribed glory. If we want to glorify God with our whole being to the best of our ability, then we need to study and look at and understand the intrinsic glory of God. This sign pointed to his intrinsic glory, his divine power over creation, his complete and total omnipotence. And then verse 12, the last verse tells us where Jesus and his mother and his brothers and his disciples went next. They went to Capernaum, which is also on the Sea of Galilee. It's Peter's hometown. But look what it says. It says that his brothers went with him. So Jesus had other siblings. So in addition to Mary being a sinner who needs saving, she was also not perpetually a virgin. That's not true. The Bible plainly tells us Jesus was, was the only son of Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit, but Jesus was not the only son of Mary. Belief clarified. Let's summarize the passage by saying Jesus and his early disciples traveled to Cana for a wedding celebration. When the wedding hosts ran out of wine, Mary, Jesus' mother, suggests that Jesus listen to her and do something. Jesus gives Mary a mild rebuke and then proceeds to complete the first of many signs in the book of John by changing a large quality, quantity of water into wine. And by doing this, Jesus reveals that he is the sovereign creator, God, and his disciples have their faith in him strengthened. That's what this passage is all about. And I think it's safe to say that this first sign does say something about the new covenant. There are all kinds of, of, of takeaways and, and applications and and points made from this passage. If you've studied this passage before for any amount of time, then you know that there are all kinds of things drawn from, from this first sign and from this first miracle. Uh, just as the water replaced with was replaced with wine, so the new covenant replaces the old covenant. I think that's fair. I think that's a valid conclusion. Jesus brings change and transformation. Absolutely. No denying that. And we could go on to make other observations. For example, the themes of wedding 
and uh, bride and, and uh, groomsmen and wine and wineskins and cup. They, they make appearances all over the Gospels and all over the New Testament. Those themes kind of pop up all over the place. However, the church would do well to rush towards making all kinds of allegorical meanings and drawing all kinds of, of, of spiritual points from this miracle because that can quickly get out of hand and take us away from the text. We don't want to walk away too far from what this says. Here's what the text tells us. Both Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his disciples both had their faith and belief clarified. Jesus became uh, more uh, clear and more accurate to them as a result of this miracle. Mary learned she couldn't presume and, and, and rest on her relationship. Instead, she too had to come to him as a sinner who needs a savior. And the disciples clearly started to follow Jesus earlier, but they had that, their faith affirmed. They, their belief was sharpened and clarified. Let's move to application with a couple of questions. These are questions that we, we should ask ourselves. Number one, does my belief need to be clarified? Does my belief need to be clarified? Have you ever seen a child get glasses for the first time? It's quite remarkable, especially if they have a strong prescription. Usually they're just dumbstruck. They're just standing there and they're speechless. All they're doing is looking at things with wonderment. Trees, all of a sudden they realize have individual branches and limbs that can be seen from the ground instead of these big fuzzy things that used to just tower over them. Scripture is like a pair of corrective lenses that clarify how we see God and how we see the things of God. And unlike glasses where some people need them and some people don't, we all need to have our belief clarified. Does my belief need to be clarified? I think the answer is a resounding yes. We all need that. None of us start off in life with a comprehensive uh, knowledge of God and, and of, of the Bible and of theology and how things work together and what, who God is and who we are into relation, in relation to him and, and what he asks us to do, what he requires of us. We, we don't have that. That's, that's not imprinted upon us. It's not hardwired. We all need belief to be clarified. Now, not exactly like Mary, probably not exactly like these, these first disciples, how they had it clarified, but in other ways. We need to have it clarified. When you go to the, the eye doctor and they pull up that big machine and, and you're looking through those two circles and they start fiddling with the dials on the side, uh, you know how this goes if you've been there. The first time they ask you to compare one and two, it's easy. One or two. One. Your, your answers are usually confident. They're quick because there's a big difference. You see, one is very fuzzy and the other one is much clearer. One or two. Two. That's easy. But as the exam continues and as they continue to turn the dials, now all of a sudden our answers don't come as quickly and they're not as confident. One or two. Um, one. Maybe. Can I see him again? 
Sure, one or two. It's similar with how our belief gets clarified over time. If you're a new believer, or if you were taught as a child in a Christian home, there are going to be some things that provide immediate, large-scale contrast. There, there are going to be some things that provide clarity and, and are, are instantaneous and are, are very easy to grasp and understand. For example, monotheism versus polytheism. Monotheism meaning one God, polytheism meaning many gods. One, monotheism, or two, polytheism. One. That's easy. There is one God. How many ways are there to God? Many ways or only through faith alone and Christ alone? Two. Faith alone and Christ alone. Easy. But as we continue in our discipleship, we are going to hit a point where these differences between one and two start to get a little more difficult to discern. Does the whole, one, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father? Or two, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son? Careful. We should expect, as we grow in our discipleship with Jesus Christ, that those easy clarifications are in the past. As we progress in our discipleship, the differences between a, a clear picture of God and a fuzzy picture of God are going to become less easy to discern. But they still need to be made. As believers, when we don't take steps to clarify... Let's say we say, I'm not going to really take too much effort to clarify my belief anymore. That's like trying to navigate through life with 2200 vision and no glasses. It's going to be difficult. You're going to bump into things. You're going to get hurt. You may fall down some stairs. What if there's an open manhole cover in the middle of the street? Watch out. But when we start to clarify our beliefs using scripture, things that were fuzzy begin to take shape. And the more we look to the Bible to clarify our faith and doctrine, the more we will have an accurate understanding of who God is, who we are, who his church is, how to live rightly before him. When we walk across the spiritual street, we're not going to fall into the open manhole. So does my belief need to be clarified? Yes. I would challenge us all this morning to take concrete steps to continue to clarify our belief. Read the Bible. Get on a good Bible reading plan. Join a Bible study. We have men's and women's Bible studies at peace. Every week, you can drop in at any time. There are some high-quality resources on, on the internet that are free from expert teachers. There's really no reason why we can't continue to clarify our belief. And it would take a lifetime. Nobody's going to find the bottom to this thing. There's, there's no bottom to this, to this well of knowledge about God, about who he is. We're never going to hit bottom. When we become married to someone, we, we enter into a covenant relationship with them for life. Likewise, when we begin to follow Jesus, we enter into a covenant relationship for life and, and afterlife, for eternity. How strange would it be if we meet someone and start to date someone with the intention of, of getting married, and at the first date, we say, uh, what's your name? Okay. Where are you from? All right, that's enough. I don't need to know anymore. Let's, let's get married. So what do we need, a minister? Or 
And then the rest of your life, you never sought to find out anything else about that person. You just wanted a spouse. How strange would that be? Likewise, how strange would it be that if someone came to faith and says, just, I just want to know Jesus, save me from my sins. Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me no. So that's all I need to know. Stop. How do we do this? I say a prayer or something? Because I just want a savior. I just want to make sure I don't go to hell. I don't need to follow up and know anything else about him. Yeah. Yeah, we all need our faith clarified. Let me ask another application question. Do I have faith? Do I have faith? If not, it is impossible to clarify something you don't have. This would be like taking someone who has their eyes gouged out and putting a pair of glasses on them. You can put glasses on them all day. You're not going to clarify anything. Nothing's going to happen. There were many guests at the wedding, but the Bible says, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples. Many guests just kept drinking the free wine. It was his disciples who had their belief clarified and strengthened. If you have not repented of your sin and turned to Jesus Christ in faith, if you have not looked to him and trusted him for provision, for his righteousness in being credited and applied to you, if you have not looked to Jesus in faith, what are you waiting for? Second Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The light is green. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's as green as it's going to get? I remember my parents saying that when we're at a stoplight and whoever was driving did not immediately take their foot off the brake and hit the gas. They would say, it's as green as it gets. We know what they mean. They, they meant, it's green. Go. What are you waiting for? Hit the gas. Today, the light is green to come to Christ. Today the light is green to become a follower of Jesus, to become one of his disciples. Some people may be saying, well, I'm going to wait for a yellow light. Many people think they'll get a yellow light. They, they hear of Christ. They know they're sinful. They, they realize they failed to live a perfect life, which is what God demands. God demands perfect righteousness, perfect moral perfection. They, they realize I don't have that. But they think to themselves, you know what, I'll know when my time's up. I'll get a yellow light. I'll, I'll see it coming. I can kind of tell, you know, maybe I'll start to get sick or, you know, I'll get old enough and things will stop working or I'll kind of see it coming. I'm going to wait for the yellow light and then I'll come back to this Jesus thing and reconsider. Not everybody gets a yellow light. Oftentimes we don't get a yellow light. Sometimes it goes from green to red. And here's the other thing. If you don't say yes 
to Jesus when you have a green light, what makes you think you're going to say yes to Jesus when the light is yellow? Because every time the gospel is proclaimed, every time Jesus is offered to someone, it either quickens them to Christ or hardens them against Christ. The gospel is not neutral. You can't listen to the word of God, to the truth of God, and remain unaffected. It either hardens you or quickens you. Don't think it's going to be any different if the light turns yellow. Jesus has the power to transform. This passage shows us that clearly. He has the power to transform water into wine. He also has the power to transform an unbeliever into a believer. An unforgiven sinner into a forgiven sinner. A, a, A person who is lost and apart from God to a person who is following Christ and one of his own. He has the power to do that. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's been transformed. The water went from one substance to another. Jesus transforms unbelievers into believers. Faith in Christ is how God reconciles people to himself. We're going to, in a moment, we're going to be going to the table where the bread and the cup represent the body and the blood of Jesus shed for his own. He died in our place. He took the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin upon himself so that when we trust in him, our sin is forgiven. God no longer counts our sin against us. Praise God. If you're a believer here this morning, I want to challenge you, never stop clarifying your belief. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, the light is green. Today is the day. Turn to Jesus and believe in him. Amen. Father, we thank you for this passage that shows us Jesus, that clarifies our belief about him, shows us he is the creator God who alters his creation at will. Father, give us the fire that we need to to never stop running towards the cross, towards Jesus. Forgive us when we're lazy. Forgive us when we make excuses. Forgive us when we, we simply just don't feel like turning to you and to your word. And Father, for anyone here this morning, I pray that they would believe upon Jesus Christ, that they would repent of their sin and that they would turn to him in faith while the light is green. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.